0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Sweet Spot, the official podcast of Taking Control of Your Diabetes. We are your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis and
1: Dr. Steve Edelman.
0: And Steve, we are so excited to be recording our very first podcast. Aren't
1: you excited? I I can't believe we're finally doing a podcast. I know.
0: It's awesome just to sit here looking at you. Just We're like, for the listeners, we're about six and a half inches apart (laughs) face-to-face with our microphones here. Um, So real quick, what is Taking Control of Your Diabetes? We call it TCOID. Well, um, Steve, obviously, I'll let you chime in, but Steve founded this organization 30 years ago now,
1: right? How long has it been? 1995. 1995.
0: And the idea being to educate and empower people living with diabetes to take control of their diabetes, advocate for themselves, be kind of proactive in their diabetes care. And for the longest time, that meant kind of these large... In-person conferences, we did all over the country, Kansas City, Missoula. I mean, how many cities have you been to at TCOID?
1: 205 cities over 25 years.
0: Wow. I didn't expect to, you to have that number on your, your tip of your tongue like that. Of that was course. I lived
1: through every... I never missed one, by the way. That's amazing.
0: So, and then, of course, COVID happened, and the, the conferences had to transition overnight to virtual. So we've been doing all this virtual video content, which has been a ton of fun, new music videos, new... Uh, Jeopardy! game shows that we just did, all that stuff. And to today, our first podcast.
1: Yeah, we've learned that a lot of people like to listen through their ears. And they could be driving. They could be doing anything where they want to listen. And apparently podcasts are very popular now. And I should remind the listeners that because we became virtual, we've been able to memorialize, I love that word, uh, so many good lectures, including our original Spotify songs that you and Eric do um, on our website, And so if there's a topic you're interested, we have a video vault, we have a type one track, a type two track. And I would say this, you know, after running TCOID for all these years uh, with our small team, it's just amazing that COVID has been a silver lining because it forced us to do something we've always wanted to do is to become scalable. So today's conference uh, reached 100 uh, people in a hundred countries. And we had over 4,000 people registered from every state in the union. And like Steve said,
0: if you are out there and you like to listen through your ears, uh, then this podcast is, is for you, so, <laughs> so hopefully that's you. So today, you know, we talked a lot about what our first topic should be, and we thought what better way to kick it off as, you know, reminding people that, first of all, we're both endocrinologists, we both treat people with diabetes, but we also also both have type 1 diabetes ourselves, so telling our own personal stories, when we're diagnosed, what are kind of our... Uh, road has been like living with diabetes so steve kick us off tell us
1: take us back to
0: 1923 you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a good way to start off our podcast series because we have so many great experts in diabetes that we're going to follow up with on many different topics we love to hear your favorite topics as well but basically in 1970 it was the dark ages um you know i became thirsty uh, urinating every five minutes I lost a ton of weight
0: when you were 15 right yeah so this was
1: 1970
0: so in, in remind me again like was this during school or was this summer because for me it was summertime so I remember that Were you yeah. in school
1: I was in middle school it was during school year it was June actually okay. now that I remember and um, I was losing a ton of weight I mean I'm gonna spare you a lot of crazy stories about not knowing what was going on with me but I lost 30 pounds oh wow and I could not get out of bed in the morning. I fell asleep during every class. I got reprimanded by my teachers. I remember drinking at the drinking fountain in middle school, Patrick Henry uh, Junior High. Shout out, people, Patrick Henry. And people were yelling, hurry up, hurry up, because I could not quench my thirst. Finally, I said to my mom, and what 15-year-old kid says, mom, I need to go to the hospital. Yeah. So I went to a doctor, and then literally 10 minutes I was after I was talking to the doctor— These nurses come in with wheelchairs. They take me off to the intensive care unit. Did they check your, they didn't have finger sticks then, did did they? No finger sticks then. But I think based on my history, the doctor was savvy enough to say, I I think something serious is going on. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I don't even know if they draw blood. They, they, They could have. Yeah. I don't remember that far back, but I was in the intensive care unit and I finally made it out to the floor and they sent me to diabetes classes that were going on while I was still in the hospital. About two weeks. you got to be really ill these days to be in the hospital that long. But in those days, it, was, it wasn't unusual. And I just remember, Jeremy, sitting in a class of about 30 overweight people with type 2. There I am, a 15-year-old kid, sitting in this room. And the teacher was an endocrinologist who was about 300 pounds, smoking a cigarette. And I always say this story. I only remember two things from that class. That ketchup has a lot of sugar in it. And uh, the other one was, uh, what am I going to dip my French fries in? I think I only remember one thing, actually. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you still eat ketchup, so yeah. you, oh, didn't, I lo- you didn't really learn anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love ketchup. I got insulin, But too. obviously,
0: you're telling this because you didn't relate to these people. Not that there's anything wrong with having type 2 or being overweight. It's just that you're a completely different case. Yeah. And, and, and education at the time was just kind of... Distilled down to everybody with diabetes, it sounds like.
1: Which is why we have the type 1 and type 2 track. Yeah. Uh, we all, we're all blood brothers, though. And then uh, that's sort of my beginnings. Uh, and I'll just say one more thing, that in those days, all they had was urine testing. And I was put on one shot of MPH and regular once a day. So you could imagine MPH doesn't even last 24 hours. And people with type 1 should be taken regular with every meal at least. So my blood sugars were extremely high all the time but I did do everything right and my mom she did the best she could she weighed out my food I was on the exchange system uh, and uh, I slowly gained some weight back and that's how I started off how about you was the
0: standard of care then that this one shot a day and like you said you know your blood sugars were high but you had no way of knowing you did your urine testing but that would tell you what your blood sugar was four hours ago and for people that don't know this the urine testing is basically pee on a stick and you hold it up to this little code And based on the color of your urine stick, it gives you an idea of what your blood sugars are. But the difference between a blood sugar of 300 and 100 is like slight beige to like slightly darker beige. You know what I mean? It's really hard to know what that is. Yeah. When I first
1: got diagnosed, they didn't have the sticks. Uh, I had to do a little chemistry test where you put the pill with five drops water, uh, five drops urine, 10 drops water. You put it in, it changes a color. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, my mom, she did everything she could, but, uh, the the control must have been terrible. Yeah.
0: And like you said, you're saying that you did everything right because, you know, we'll talk later that uh, I think you're dealing with complications now. And you you mentioned earlier that you've kind of let go some of that guilt around it, that you are dealing with complications. And probably some of that guilt is that everybody with diabetes, when they, when something goes wrong, I think an immediate thing is to blame yourself. Like, Oh, I should have done better. But you, this is just the way it was back
1: then. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there are people who have had diabetes 50 plus years, like myself, that do not have any classic complications, more power to them. Yeah. But um, yeah. And, uh, you know, from there, I, you know, there's a lot of other stories where I went to college, medical school, but I want to hear about your story. Yeah.
0: I think, you know, so you were diagnosed in 1970. I was diagnosed in 1994, 95. And a lot had happened. In diabetes in 24 years or whatever that is. But we both were 15 years we're old. We both were 15 years old. So people can do the math, I guess. Um, but um, anyways, the main thing that had happened was that we finally learned in 1994, there was a big publication. Is that right? 93, 94? 93. DCC, yeah. yeah. was the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, the DCCT, which finally showed that, get this, keeping your blood sugars under control helped. It was a good thing in terms of keeping people healthy, avoiding going blind, losing their kidneys and things like that. And up until then, it was still a debate, believe it or not. So like we were saying, when you were diagnosed, it was just kind of standard of care. Keep your blood sugars reasonably controlled. Don't go low, you know, just minimize kind of injections. And then when I was diagnosed, that kind of landmark had happened. And um, so it it was a much different time. So for me, Kind of a similar story, even though this was 20 some odd years later, I was 15 years old. Um, I remember it was uh, summer and I was between freshman and sophomore year of high school. And just like you, Steve, drinking a ton. And you'll never forget that sensation. It's not just being thirsty. It's just that as soon as water hits your mouth, it just seems to just evaporate. Your mouth is just so, so dry. It's just a crazy feeling. And then being up, you know, multiple times a night to pee Um, losing weight that I didn't have to lose. I was already a skinny kid, lost, you know, 15, 20 pounds. Um, And so my story is that it was the day my brother was going to to college. He was going to school in Berkeley, and we drove him to Berkeley, which was like two hours away. We lived in Sacramento, and um, we get there to unload all his stuff out of the car and move him into the dorms. And he was on, like, the eighth floor of this this dorm. And, of course, the elevators happened to be broken that day. And it's August, so it's, like, 100 degrees out. So I'm going up, like, eight flights of stairs and 100-degree, like, temperature is, like, sweating. I'm already super dehydrated, carrying up his stupid, like, you know, desk lamp and, like, I don't know, some, like, <laughs> high school project he had, like, you know, that he wants to decorate his room with. And I remember complaining to my parents. I didn't feel well. And they kept giving me sodas because I kept telling them I was thirsty. So I remember they just kept literally giving me like cans of Coke and regular soda. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I was a kid and that's what I wanted. I didn't want to drink diet. So let me back up though. Cause I, one thing I do remember is before all this happened, we had this rule in my house that you could only drink one soda a day. And honestly, I'm surprised we even had that rule. So we actually had Cokes and Pepsi's. And I remember literally taking a six pack of Coke into the bathroom and locking the door and just hiding in there and just drinking the Cokes because I just, you were so thirsty and I knew I shouldn't be doing this, but like I'm so thirsty. So anyways, fast forward back to Berkeley. My parents are giving me soda and I eventually get so sick to my stomach that I throw up on Telegraph Avenue. And if anybody knows Berkeley, that's kind of like the famous street where yeah. the hippies and things are. And I, I actually ended up going to Berkeley three years later, and I would always walk by that place that I threw up on Telegraph Avenue.
1: Did they clean it up? No, it was still there.
0: (laughs) Uh, But uh, so anyways, uh, my parents are kind of like sidelining me, right? It's my brother's big day. He's the firstborn. They're like, Jeremy, just kind of get over yourself. This isn't about you. Um, And they put me in the car, and I remember just falling asleep. And we drove home eventually. And it's so funny that you mentioned it because... You know, again, I'm a 15 year old kid. I remember talking to my mom and saying, I need to go to the doctor or the hospital. Something is seriously wrong with me. So we went to an urgent care, like, you know, we called them a doc in the box, and they did check my blood sugar um, on a meter. And I just remember it coming back saying hi, just HI. And I, I, you know, I didn't know anything. I just thought, well, that's probably not good. And these meters read up to about 600, you know, 600 milligrams per deciliter. So that means my blood sugar was over 600. And the doctor says, well, you know, you guys need to go to the hospital. I don't remember the word diabetes ever being said. I just remember him saying like something serious, go home. And so he said, but before you go home, you guys can stop by because you might be in the hospital for a little bit. Get your toothbrush, get your blanket, whatever. So we go home and get my stuff. And I tell my mom like, gosh, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want to go get some food because I'm hungry. And she said, where do you want to go? And I was like, well, I want to go to Chili's. So we went to Chili's and I remember this meal like vividly. We sat down. I had a full plate of baby back ribs. um, This whole thing, a side of French fries. I'm dipping it in barbecue sauce, free refills, right? So I'm getting like Cokes, Dr. Peppers, like Sprites, everything you should not be eating when my blood sugar was probably like a zillion. Go to the hospital. They check my blood sugar there. It's over a thousand. And they (sighs) rush me immediately to the intensive care unit, just like you. And so the joke I always tell people is I went from like literally paying the bill at Chili's to the intensive care <laughs> unit in like 15 minutes. Um, and so then they, they give me and so they stabilize me and I get kind of the regular floor. And it just it was an, an odd transition that, you know, like it, it doesn't occur to you when you're 15 that you're going to have something for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I remember thinking about what I had going on. It was a summer like I had I was going to go to the state fair that Saturday. Like, get me out of here because I just want to go do that. And so, just it did not sink in for, I think, the longest time that this was something that I was going to have to deal with forever. And so, you know, opposed to your regimen, I was on regular NPH, just like you were, but at least I got two shots a day. Mm-hmm. And I had a blood sugar meter, uh, but my meter was called the One Touch Basic. Um, and I always make the joke that I loved it. Even then, they knew it was basic. It sucked. Um, <laughs> it took a minute to give a reading. And here I am complaining about my blood sugar meter when you didn't, you're probably like, you son of a bitch like, at least you had a <laughs> yeah you're right at least took, you had a meter took the words out of my mind but um it took a minute to get a result and oh. i remember <laughs> i remember hiding it under my desk in high school all the time and like you know dropping a blood thing on there and waiting a whole minute to get a result um you know it was embarrassing you don't you want to fit in you want to just not deal with this so that's my story of, of how i was first
1: diagnosed yeah, yeah. Oh my God. But you, talk to
0: me about your. Then you know, you're in high school. You're in college. Yeah. How did things change? Like evolve for you?
1: You know what? I I, I want to say one more thing that you reminded me of. That uh, when I was in the hospital the first time, a nurse would come up to me, like a different nurse every couple hours. You could live a long, long and healthy life with diabetes. Like, you could live a long and healthy life. They kept saying it. And I had no clue what they were talking about. But the way they said it, I really started to worry. Mm -hmm. Because back then, in in 1970, it was a a death sentence, you know, to have type 1. You know, your life expectancy was down to, like, 20 years after diagnosis. You'd have kidney disease or be blind. So, you know, everyone was trying to comfort me. But I didn't really know what I was supposed to be comforted for. But I, I would say this, Jeremy. Going through high school, I felt like I was the only person in the world with type one. Um, I do remember Mike Anderson. I don't even know what happened to him, but he was a guy with type one, and we hung out together. I always remember his face being really red and puffy, and I always wondered was that because of his diabetes control? So he had type one. Yeah, it's he the only had. Only other one.
0: guy you knew that. Okay.
1: And I played high school football, and I had sweet stuff in the little, you know, the little box they had on this on the field, but no one really knew anything about diabetes. My coach always kind of gave me crap for like, you know, peeing on a glucose stick in the corner of the field. I mean, and even college, I didn't know one person in college that had diabetes. You know, I mean, it was, you know, 25 years before you, but, um, I was felt pretty alone out there. And, um, I would say in college, I hung out, I volunteered to work in the lab of Dr. Mayor Davidson a famous diabetes researcher, and he took me in and he really helped me out. He got me on a better regimen, um, you know, um, and uh, glucose meters weren't even available then. I was still urinating, you know, and, the, and so he helped me quite a bit, and then I eventually went to med school. Yeah. And uh, med school is where I kind of flourished a little bit. What about you?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, literally the first person I met with type 1 diabetes was my roommate in the hospital, and he was a kid my age. He was fifteen, sixteen. But he had been in the hospital like multiple times. Mm-hmm. Like he was there for DKA um, again. And I remember he would kind of like talk to me, like, "Hey, man, like you know, like sometimes when like I don't want to do what my parents say, I just like you know I don't take my insulin or whatever." And was telling me all these kind of like strategies to utilize your type one diabetes to like do stuff. And I just thought that that was so odd. And I, I, <laughs> I remember thinking, I don't want to be like this kid. And and looking back on it, I almost wonder, like, was this a ploy by the hospital to like put me with some <laughs> kid? Like maybe he was a hired actor that just, just stays there like, you know, all the time to like scare the living hell out of like That's newly. That's a bad idea though. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. I uh, like that idea. So, you know, like and then getting out of the hospital, like honestly, like, um, I was really motivated to get my parents off my back you know, they're they're great parents, um, but they, you know, wanted to know everything, what my blood sugar was and everything. So the sooner I could just kind of show them that I had it and I was running with it, like the sooner I could kind of get them off my back. But I know that's a really tough transition for people. And a lot of parents, like it's it's a strain on the relationship. You know, our good friend Bill Polonsky, like who's a behavioral uh, diabetes specialist, always tells us like, You know, when when parents with they have a kid with type one diabetes, it's like ask them anything before you ask them what their blood sugar was. And that's what I remember. As soon as I come home from school, what's your blood sugar? First thing in the morning, what's your blood sugar? So that was just like always just kind of there. But I did okay with it. Like, obviously, I didn't have a continuous glucose monitor. I didn't have a pump. I remember being low all the time. And because I think I would just take these doses of, of insulin and NPH, like when it peaked, like you had to eat. And if you didn't, you could be really kind of screwed. So um, I remember just being low a lot. And even when I met you much later in life, you'd make yeah. fun of me that I had just like half drink sodas everywhere because that was kind of my thing that I would just maybe ride a little too low. I don't know. Um, but I don't have many other memories of high school other than just trying <laughs> to minimize it, to be honest, trying to just take a, to take care of it. Um, I didn't like openly tell people I had it, not because I was ashamed of it, just because I just didn't want to deal with it. And then same thing in college, I tried to run with it, but the interesting thing was, and this is kind of fast forwarding way ahead to meeting you, mm-hmm. is I was diagnosed, you know, I was put on regular pH. I did that all through high school. I did that all through college. Um, and in college, like there was new insulins, there's Lantus, like things like that. So, and then all and through med school, I was in the same thing too, because I really wasn't seeing a doctor. I was just on the same thing I was on, you know, when I was diagnosed. And so many people out there are like that. They get started on something, they get some initial education, and then they just kind of check out for a long time, especially people with type 1 diabetes when they're young. Because by the way, you know, like the kind of natural history of type 1 diabetes is that a1Cs tend to be pretty good when people are, are young. And then they go to hell, like in like, 18, 19, 20. And then around 26 or so, people's A1Cs tend to start improving as like we realize that we're all going to die someday and we better start taking care of ourselves. <laughs> but it was meeting you then, much later when I was in residency. Um, this is after medical school. So I'm probably you know about 30 years old now. And I meet you because people say hey, like you're interested in diabetes, you should talk to this guy, Steve Edelman. I had never met you. This is almost the end of my residency. So I meet you, and I'm supposed to be there to talk about this lecture I'm going to be giving. And you find out that I have type 1 diabetes, and you say, like, what are you? What pump are you on or what CGM are you on? And I just kind of had a deer-in-the-headlights look, like, what are you talking about? And I tell you that I'm on regular and MPH, and you about flew through the window. <laughs> and um, you want to tell part of that story, like what well, your side of it was?
1: Well, you know what, um... <clears throat> Yeah, when you came in, uh, I always lose my shit when anybody comes in and they're living in the cave, you know? Um, and you know what? I do remember one thing. Although I was shocked you were still on it being a smart doctor, um, your control was good and you were giving yourself all kinds of correction doses. And I, I hopefully I didn't traumatize you too badly. But, no, I mean, we're still friends. But this, <laughs> but this relates to a, a topic or a question I wanted to ask you. And I think our story is different. Like what led you to the field of endocrinology? Yeah, And I, let me just say mine first, which is quick. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a dentist because the dentist had a big treasure chest full of toys that he would give out after the visit. So I wanted my own treasure chest. As I got older and I met this Dr. Mayor Davidson and I did research when, as an undergrad, I, I just knew I wanted to be a diabetes specialist and, and the, rest, the rest is history.
0: Yeah. I mean, now you got your, you got your toys now. I love that you have squirt guns and slingshots and everything at your house. It's pretty amazing. So even though you're not a dentist, you came out that, on top. That's interesting. Yeah, I never made that
1: correlation. <laughs> I was playing with my new stick bots last night.
0: Those are pretty sweet. Um, so for me, like it was like you, like I, I wanted to go to medical school. Obviously, I had this experience with diabetes. I wanted to go into diabetes, um, but then going through medical school and residency, I just wasn't so sure. And I think. Sadly, there's there's a number of reasons for that. Like you know, being an endocrinologist, to be honest, isn't like a sexy profession. Um, it doesn't pay well. Um, I mean, you and I make it sexy. It's doing a little dance right now, which is pretty cute. <laughs> um, but like, it's just uh, it's not as a competitive a field. It, like they don't make as much money. I already said, and that mattered to me for two reasons. One, I had a crap ton of like student loans. I had like almost a half a million dollars of student loans. I had to pay off. And I think just like in medicine, you always, you get really competitive and you kind of want to do the next competitive thing. So I was thinking cardiology or pulmonary, like some of these other more competitive things. Um, and it was really meeting you that made me come back to to see that there is a lot going on in diabetes. I mean, again, here I was on regular NPH and I thought that that was diabetes. That's not really fun. But learning there's, gosh, there's continuous glucose monitoring, there's insulin pumps, there's ways to actually help people. Things are changing. Uh, that's when I thought, gosh, I could really make a difference here, and, you know, I don't regret it for a second. I actually can't imagine not being in this field, like being like a cardiologist or something. Blow my brains out.
1: Well, how how do you think having diabetes affects the way you treat your patients in clinic? And I can answer after you how I feel.
0: Well, you know, I I, I think you're probably the same, that we don't really think twice about it, just the way that we, we interact with people with diabetes. But it's interesting now when we have trainees with us, like these are... Uh, what we call residents, people that are going through their diabetes, their education and constantly they'll say like, gosh, it's just so cool to see how you can relate to these people. Um, and, you know, kind of, uh, address the things that, that aren't in the textbooks, you know, how to wear your palm, how to deal with, you know, insertion site issues, what low blood sugar really feels like. Um, and also kind of call them out on their BS if, you know, like if it's stuff that, you know, like, um, so it's just a, a much more real way, I think, of interacting with people. But it all starts from a place of empathy. And when people come in or anyone sees 14, I'm not mad at them. You know, I'm not, it's not a blame game. I know this, this disease sucks. I know it's really, really hard. So at least, I, you know, the last thing I'll say, and I'll let you jump in. Almost every time I see a patient, the first thing they say to me is some kind of explanation about why they're not doing well. Like before I can say anything, well, you know, the last two weeks I was traveling my, you know, I was eating like whatever, but like, you know, like kind of like don't jump on me. And I'm like, you just like, let's take this down a notch and just work together to, to get
1: you in control. Yeah. You know, my experience is very similar. I, I think you said the, the magic word empathy and it doesn't mean that you and I are just going to accept everybody's poor blood sugars over the years, especially when they don't even try you know, not that our suggestions are the end-all suggestions, but, you know, I, I'd say I have my biggest problem with patients who I've really poured my heart out over, giving them suggestions, and they come in very sporadically, you know, email the office when they run out of prescriptions, and their A1Cs are just consistently high. And I, I, I wonder if being too nice is not a good thing sometimes. But I do hear stories of doctors who who berate their patients. I just don't know what to do with patients who are chronically high, and I've tried everything. So sometimes changing up providers. But at UCSD, I I tried to change. I tried to get a patient to go to another doctor, and then Dr. Cho, head of our department, lost his shit too. Like I can't do that. So anyway, it's uh we're human, and we get frustrated too. But I think in general. Uh, patients love the fact that I'm a doctor and that because I understand what they're going through and I do. Yeah. Um, and so. I think, you know, maybe people
0: realize, maybe they don't, but endocrinology is a very, very broad field. So when we go through our training, we're learning everything there is to know about the thyroid, the adrenal gland, pituitary, testosterone, estrogen, all these things. And so there's a lot of endocrinologists out there that just simply don't like treating diabetes, you know, that they would rather be doing these other things. And even the people that, um, do like to do diabetes or some that don't want to take care of type 1 so yeah. it's actually hard to find someone who can really dedicate or, or is really really interested in diabetes specifically so people will ask a lot like you know who's the best person I should see like you know um, how, or I'm in an area there's no good endocrinologist what can I do and you just got to see someone to at least help you with the basics and this is where places like TCOID can be so helpful Because even if you have the quote-unquote best endocrinologist, there's just not enough time. You really have to, you know, take it on yourself to learn about the disease, keep up with what's going on, you know, treat yourself, all those kinds of things
1: that you just can't do in a 10-minute visit, even if it's with you or me. Yeah, I mean, that's what taking control of your diabetes. It really, it really means you should be knowledgeable, you can have a good conversation with your caregiver, and also bring up ideas that you may have seen on TCOID in a gentle way, because some doctors egos are too big. Uh, I did want to touch on before we get close to the end is how diabetes has affected your relationships. And I'll just talk to about my kids, you know, you know, my I have a colleague who's had type one for a long time. He never told his kids, he went into the bathroom at home to do the injections. He never told his colleagues, and he was worried that they would uh, freak out. And you know, I and I think just like you, you know, our our kids have been around us injecting, infusion lines, getting low, stealing our skittles uh, at, <laughs> at, at at a moment's notice. And um, I feel good that they they don't freak out over it. But everybody's different, yeah. and I can't tell anybody to come out of the closet when they're not ready to do that. You know, and then my ex-wife, uh, you know, she we didn't get divorced because of my diabetes. <laughs> yeah. But there were a lot of other reasons and that's another podcast, by the way. <laughs> but um I want to listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um I think it, it comes down to communication and well, uh, I would say that you know,
0: for kind of normal relationships, I feel like it just it doesn't really affect them. But there can be positives. Like you and I have like a deeper friendship, and I think other people that have diabetes can relate um, because of the disease. And then with my kids, they think diabetes is the coolest thing on the planet, (laughs) you know, because we're doing all these videos and these music videos. So I got to tell a story I haven't told you. Um, my son Cooper, who's six, uh, we just made this music video. That's kind of like me doing like being Elton John basically. So I'm singing this song and talking about diabetes and Cooper says like, well, you look like Elton John. And I said, yeah. And then he said, does he have diabetes? And I said, no, he doesn't. And he said, Yeah, I didn't think he was that cool. <laughs> you know, so like being having diabetes equates to being like cool. And you know, I always tell him obviously you that's don't want funny. this. But does... um so it's it's helped our relationship just because we talk about it, you know, obviously we have a good time with it and things like that. So And by the way, that's
1: that song is on our website too, and Spotify. Now he knows Elton John. I know Cooper. He he because he I know you're a musical guy. Yeah. You always got music going in the house.
0: And... He does like Elton John, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but um, he does.
1: He's pretty good. He's he's got a good ear. I appreciate he likes it. ZZ Top too. I he play likes the, everything. Played yeah. the music video. <laughs> no, my The funny story with my younger daughter Karina, who you know, when she was about six, we gave a lecture at a big fancy place, and they had a big buffet um, at the La Jolla Museum of Art and whatever. And I was walking, that's around. what it's called,
0: Museum of Art and whatever. It's, yeah. it's like the left side is art and the right
1: side is just whatever. Like that. <laughs> and I was walking with my plate and as I was coming in front of the desserts, she yells out and like oh I think everybody heard it. Dad you can't eat those. You're a diabetic. <laughs> and like everyone looked over. I was so embarrassed. But you know, she did it out of a place of love.
0: That's funny. I had the opposite story where I was, this is I remember this when I was recently diagnosed. It was 15, 16. We go to a, a breakfast spot and um we order pancakes and the waiter brings like, you know, regular syrup. And my dad literally stands up at this restaurant and yells across the restaurant, my son can't eat this syrup. He has diabetes. And I'm like, oh my god! I know, you know? your dad. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just like, thanks, you know, Captain Diabetes. You're lucky Jeff wasn't me. there. I know. Rather.
1: Well, anyways, I think it's time to close up. And I, I do.
0: I, I love that. I, I'm, I'm liking this podcast. And we had this, like, this outline that kind of went out the window here, but
1: not, not really, <laughs> not really. We won. We, we covered everything, but everything important. But I think it's important just to. Talk about our experience with diabetes, how it affects us and our and our life. And I think, you know, you mentioned it already, but that's one of the whole purpose of TCOID is for people to get educated, motivated, and why we put a lot of edutainment in what we do because, you know, it it could be boring. Diabetes education classes could be boring. And you know, you've heard me say this a hundred times, but I think humor leads to information retention. And uh, I know a lot of folks out there are frustrated with their with their care. It's not because their doctors don't care about them, but our healthcare system is broken. There's no time and doctors can't keep up with all the latest changes. Well, and I think hopefully people can
0: relate and maybe not with our specific stories of exactly what happened, but both of you and I have had periods of our lives that we've been out of control. And even today when we're in control with our blood sugars, every day we're having a high, maybe a low, something, you know, so it's, it's everybody understanding that, that we all do our best. It's a tough disease, but staying educated, trying to stay positive, trying to take some of the wins that come with diabetes. Gosh, I had a good day yesterday. Some, you know, positive, something like that uh, can be really helpful. Having a diabetes friend, and I'm motioning to my friend Steve Element over here, um, it, it makes a huge difference.
1: And we should should say a few words about uh, all of you type twos out there that we're going to have lots of type two topics. And I know your diagnosis was probably a lot more uneventful. Your doctor may have said, hey, your blood sugar's is 300. You may not have even felt that different. But I've always said that. Living with type two in many ways is more difficult than type ones because you not only have diabetes, but you're most likely going to have high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol levels, uh, problems with central weight problems. And you might need a truckload of drugs that you actually need to treat all those conditions. And um, so it's frustrating to live with type two. and, And also people with type two don't have that sense of urgency. You could have an A1C really high. Uh, and you don't feel as bad as you would. I would feel if we stopped our insulin. And if you don't have that sense of urgency, you sort of may end up going through the years under poor control. So we'll have Bill Polanski on here to talk about touchy-feely issues in, the, in one of our future podcasts. Yeah, there's plenty of things to talk about. So
0: with that, be sure to subscribe, which is a new word that I've learned. Um, subscribe to get information on our podcast. Keep listening to this. Go to our website. Um, you know, there's all kinds of information there. Again, the video vault, there's there's video lectures, obviously there are podcasts you can find there. Uh if it's in your heart to donate, please do that. Um but otherwise, uh we're going to keep doing these podcasts. This has been fun. Yeah. And um I will hear you at the next one, Steve. All right. Goodbye everybody. See you later.